Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. That's really saying something. People could see it outside, whether you were going by on a bus or on a city bike, or like me, I ran by one morning and I thought, you know, the Met is closed, but the facade of the museum with these beautiful outdoor sculptures kept it alive. That was Dr. Carrie Rabora Barrett, CEO and William C. Steer Sr. President of the New York Botanical Garden, and previously Deputy Director for Collections and Administration at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. At the Garden, Carrie is the first woman to hold the position and led the Garden through leadership transition, continuing the institution's work as an anchor institution in the Bronx and in the cultural life of New York City and the nation, and strengthening its role as a world leader in the botanical and horticultural dimensions of climate change, sustainability, food security, and beauty that fosters human wellness in body and mind. At the Met, she worked first as a curator of American art and transitioned from research and scholarship to governance and administration, leading visitor-focused, mission-aligned initiatives in cultural history and conservation practice for the institution during a transformational period in the museum's history. A native Chicagoan, she received her BA from the University of Illinois, MA in Art History from UCLA, and PhD from the City University of New York. This summer, she turns over a new leaf and for the time being is undertaking select independent projects. We're lucky to catch her during a rare moment of downtime. Welcome, Carrie. I'm so glad to be with you today, virtually. Wish we could be together. I agree, but we'll make the best of it. So, Carrie, you're someone who's happy to take on new challenges and test yourself. Give us a sense of what you are proudest of accomplishing at the Botanical Garden. I am proudest of all the work that I do with a new group of staff. I'd say to you, and I know we share, you know, transitions. Isn't it remarkable to meet a new group of people, to learn from them, and then to work with all of them to move an institution forward? Part of the subtext there is, I would say, you know, it's lonely at the top. A CEO and president never does anything all alone. You rely on really gifted people. And in this case, I did. It was quite a leap for me. I moved from my comforts in art history at a great big art museum, the Met, to a world of horticulture, botany, and outdoor beauty. I had a lot to learn. I did a lot of listening. And what I'm most proud of is the way that we leverage everything that the garden has to offer in the Bronx. In the beautiful, beautiful Bronx, the greenest row has emerald necklace that runs from, if you can picture kind of the Hudson River over New Riverdale, all the way over to Orchard Beach and runs right through Van Cortland Park, the New York Botanical Garden and the zoo, the Wildlife Conservation Society. And I saw when I arrived that one of the greatest prerogatives for the garden was to connect that community. And during COVID over the past six months, that was ever more important to connect to them online through hundreds of community gardens that we support. And then also now that the garden is reopening to get people in the door, help them enjoy the cultivated nature that is the beautiful New York Botanical Garden. Gary, give us some background on the Botanical Garden, its place in New York, and how this moment that we're all living through, this moment of reckoning around social responsibility, is affecting both the garden and how you think about the cultural world in New York in general. I've been involved in culture for over 30 years in New York. 
until I got to the New York Botanical Garden, the penny hadn't dropped. In the 1890s, so here's the history lesson, the powers that be, our civic leaders, within 20 years established four great cultural institutions. Now, I knew the Met and the American Museum of Natural History are both celebrating their 150th anniversaries this year. That was 1870. One devoted to collections of art from all over the world, the American Museum of Natural History. And they are the same people, the same group of, let's say, mostly white men in a room, you know, downtown saying, in order to establish culture in this post-Civil War reconstruction era, we need a great art museum. We need a great place that will show planetary science, earth science, paleontology, insect studies, the way the world works. 20 years later to the founding date, but I'm imagining they were talking about it ever since, comes the New York Botanical Garden. 1891-92, two botanists who are essentially doing the same work that the archaeologists at the Met were doing, but Elizabeth and Nathaniel Britton were collecting plants from all over the world. So now there's art, there's the natural world and the, and the sky. Now we're going to add botany, uh, records of the plants. You can guess what's coming next. Within five years of the botanical garden comes the zoo. Animals, vertebrate life on earth. Those four institutions, the first cultural institutions group in New York. There are now over 30 museums, botanical gardens, and zoos, and what, what we fondly call the cultural institutions group, supported by the city. And all of these were supported by the city. Original charter for those first four and the other 20-some-odd institutions that now comprise the cultural institution group always wanted to reach a broad, they didn't use the word verse, but always a broad public. It may have been, you know, sort of white idealism. The people around the table wanted to make New York a great city by establishing these organizations. But if you look at the mission statements, the original charters for these first four institutions, they're very, very much for a broad population. They are in Manhattan and they're in the Bronx. They spread across the geography of New York City in order to teach, educate, is in every single mission statement of those original four and the ones that came forward. If we can all think back to the founding principles of the organizations where, where we work, we realize that teaching and showing great works of art, great works of natural history, great works of living collections, plants and animals, to the broadest population possible was always in charter. We just have to remember that that was always our priority, always our priority. And then every once in a while, we get a wake-up call. It isn't so much a heavy lift because we've been doing it for 150 years. That was fascinating history, Carrie. Thank you. I didn't know all that and appreciate it. And it leads me to ask you, as an Americanist, the sense of responsibility that you feel as a scholar, as a curator, as someone who's witness to the ways in which institutions, both private and public, are thinking about the display of art. That includes museums, and that includes statuary of the kind that has come under fire, particularly in the former Confederacy. Tell us a bit about how you approach that. It's complicated, and I'm going to be careful in my answer. I had the privilege as a curator of American art for a long time, 
one of the last things I worked on at the Met before I moved into a deputy director role was the renovation of the American wing, which included the placement of Washington crossing the Delaware. And my great joy as a researcher of finding the documents from the 1860s of what the original frame. Now that original frame has armaments of war and a great big eagle. To cut to the chase, what I want to say, that picture couldn't be more bombastic about westward expansion. By the way, I like to remind people that it wasn't painted in 1776. It was painted in 1864. It's a Civil War era period. It's about the expansion of America. It's about bombast. Back in 2008, 2009, at the time when we were reconfiguring the American wing, we actually talked about what that painting would mean for people. Would it be offensive? Celebrating the American past that was about that kind of expansion into native lands, indigenous territory, you know, all of that that continues to our day. And the decision that art museums make, which is a hard one, is that if we put everything offensive to anyone, in storage or moved it into a special gallery, everything would go away. The Me Too movement when I was at the Met meant you would have to put all the Picassos in storage. You know, all the, you name an artist who has a, you know, a male artist who has a history of not being so nice to women. Baltus, do we, you know, do we take all those pictures off the wall? The Met didn't. The idea is that we become witnesses to history. And I think the interpretation of works of art is what's key here, that rather than maybe celebrating the hero worship of an artist as if they had no skeletons in their closet, one way of dealing with this, I'm, I'm talking specifically about labels and text panels that might contextualize these great works of art. With something like Washington Crossing the Delaware, looking at it through the historical lens of what that moment in history meant, and how we might look back now and say, we can be critical of that past, but we can't have historical amnesia. Uh, it's better almost to live in our discomfort, to look at works of art. The statues that have been moved in civic places, Richmond, Virginia, the Roosevelt statue in the front of the American Museum of Natural History. I have to agree that it was time for this to come down, just the trigger points in our society. I'm pleased that most of those statues aren't being destroyed. You know, they're being hidden for a while. They're being put away. The sculptors who made them were commissioned to make them in a period of time. The people they represent have checkered pasts. But the world turns. And I'd like to think that years from now, maybe decades from now, maybe a long period of time, we may never see Robert E. Lee back on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. And we may never see Roosevelt on Central Park West in front of the American Museum of Natural History. But there are difficult lessons that we can learn from those statues. So it's, I think it's important to provide a place for them so that no one ever says 50 years from now, why did we throw that away? There's something we can learn. I wanted you to put your hat on as both a curator and an administrator in light of museums starting to reopen. How are museums, the big ones in New York in particular and elsewhere, going to cope with the evaporation of tourism? This is such a big question. So in terms of the evaporation of tourism, the economy is, pardon my French, sort of up a creek, you know, without a paddle. Great museums of New York City count on bringing as many people as possible through their doors. You and I both have the privilege of saying, I'd like to see this exhibition 
can I come at eight o'clock in the morning so I don't have to be with crowds? But by and large, most people who visit museums across the world deal with crowds. You stand in the Vatican surrounded by people looking at the Sistine Ceiling. Same things happens at the Met. Funnily enough, there is a kind of a community enjoyment that happens when you're with people. If a lot of people are looking at something and you're right next to someone who's smiling and laughing and talking, it affirms that you're in the right place. Engagement is good. Cultural studies now show that one of the things that people miss most, and this, there's statistics behind this, is that community. As museums reopen and capacity is limited, will the experience of looking at art be the same if you're the only one? Part of that's delightful, but I, I'm really interested in the experience of museums where you like to be with other people looking at things because that's your cohort and they laugh, and they smile. The tourism piece is huge because in huge cities, museums are on the bucket list. You come to New York, tourism, what do you do? You see a Broadway show? Not in the near future. You go to the Met, the Guggenheim or MoMA. You go to a ball game. All of the things that we're talking about will be challenging in the future. In terms of museum administration, the garden opened before the indoor museums, but the logistics are the same. So there's my administrative hat, masks, replacement of faucets in bathrooms, social distancing protocols, stickers on the floor. The idea that once you walk through the door of an indoor museum, just as we were grateful starting in the middle of July for people to walk through the gates of the New York Botanical Garden, People only wanted to come if they knew that they would be safe, that everyone's wearing a mask, that surfaces are clean. So there's a lot of logistical and practical planning that all of us who work at great cultural institutions have to do to make people feel safe. The business question behind this will require the greatest kind of creative thinking from people like you and me and, and others in positions of leadership and culture to actually redefine not only the visitor experience so that people will feel like they're in the right place, even if they're the only one in the gallery of Van Gogh's at the Met, or you're the only one in the Rose Garden at the New York Botanical Garden. But then, first of all, does that feel good? But the business piece of it is that the creative thinking that has to happen is how we all manage for the foreseeable future without the gate. And that is not only a challenge, but I think a huge opportunity for all of us to think about what we do without all that admissions. So beyond the experience of art in the galleries, there have to be changes. The budgets of museums have to be trimmed, and that's programmatic. So what do you foresee happening with respect to audience use of auditoria and other spaces? And will digital platforms replace lectures, for example? Digital platforms will supplant a lot of those. I think even, even I have been involved, like you, I think we met through, you know, digital initiatives when I was at the Met and you were at Indianapolis doing amazing cutting edge things, Max. Um, digital initiatives that might have seemed, you know, not even a close second for an actual experience. And any of us who's ever been at a know that looking at an actual work of art, standing in front of it is an extraordinary experience that can never be replaced by that same experience online. But over the past five months, I think we've seen some really, really clever uses of digital technology. It has to be the next best thing. And we're gonna get more and more comfortable. Zoom lectures and Zoom operas and um, all of that. 
the answer to the question about museum programming goes back to logistics. I've been talking to colleagues in that creative space, live arts at the Met and at the Garden, where there might be kind of ambulatory experiences, maybe roving musicians that don't require us all to sit down. We all know that music and dance and the performing arts are so important to the visual experience. They enhance the works on the wall. So there may be new ways to do that with performers who find you and who don't require any of us to sit still. Singers who all of a sudden come out of nowhere choirs who pop up in the middle of a gallery when you least expect it. Those kinds of experiences, I think, will be delightful for us going forward. I haven't been on an airplane since January, way before this started, just didn't happen to have any travel in February. But if the airlines can do it, that Broadway and musical performance and museums should be able to do it too, whether it's every other seat, recirculated air, um, another thing that I would add, though, is that even if great institutions work out how audiences behave and sit and listen and enjoy, there's the whole backstage proposition that had to happen with very, very close quarters for singers and performers and orchestra members and people who are changing costumes and talking to each other and it's not just the audience, it's actually the performance back of house. All those green rooms and dressing rooms that will have to be reconfigured. I have architect friends. I say the world must be your oyster if you're looking at how offices and amphitheaters and sporting stadiums and everywhere needs to be reconfigured. Kind of interesting to think about how space must change to make us comfortable. And even with all the precautions that are being taken, people will still be jittery about going inside buildings. So what do you foresee happening with outdoor art experiences? A lot of museums are in parks, they have spaces outdoors, roofs. What do you foresee in the next few months? I think the outdoor art experience proposition is huge, and it's one that we can think about. My two years at the Garden, during which you know I arranged a five-year going forward exhibition plan to 2024, meant that I had to pay more attention looking at outdoor art. This is even COVID. We were thinking about which contemporary artists are currently doing great work that can stand the test of weather that will look beautiful over the course of a hot summer and continue to look beautiful many artists who are working with plant-based material, the actual plants, sculptors working with trees and tree forms at biennials where there are great outdoor spaces or have been in Venice and Milan at Frieze. It may be that the contemporary art, the commercial world got there before the museums and that's something that we have to tap into. The relationship, here's my other little history lesson, is that the great museums of the country are all situated in parks. You know, the Met didn't start out in Central Park, but the St. Louis Museum is in a beautiful, beautiful park. Chicago, right next to the lakefront, in, in a glorious park. I could go on and on. And you know, too, most of the great museums, the New Whitney that was just built with views of the river. So the interaction of nature and these great cultural civic spaces is right there and was planned from the beginning, from the late 19th century into the 20th century, the creation of civic spaces where people could enjoy themselves with a walk through the park to a great art museum, wanting you to have an indoor-outdoor exhibition space. Most of the park space is owned by civic authorities. It's a case in which museum leaders have an ever more pressing need to be engaged with parks commissioners 
and artists associations who are looking at art that can be outdoors. Something I heard the other week that while the Metropolitan Museum was closed, those beautiful sculptures on the facade of the Met were the only exhibition that stayed open. That's really saying something. People could see it outside, whether you were going by on a bus or on a city bike, or like me, I ran by one morning and I thought, you know, the Met is closed, but the facade of the museum with these beautiful outdoor sculptures kept it alive. So I think there's real promise there. We're seeing artists respond to that too. Well, that certainly opens up a lot of boundaries and opportunities for artists, for museums, for commissioning new works of art in parks and outdoor spaces. I'm curious, speaking of boundaries, as an Americanist, tell us a bit about the state of the American art field. What changes are there from your perspective around the boundaries of what is meant today by American art? I'm like you, same generation. I grew up with the questions of what is American about American art? Was, you know, is it all derivative, derived from England? What's the Spanish influence? Is anything really American? Parochial, as I'll admit that that was, you know, back in the 1980s and 1990s when I was doing my, you know, educational work, no one ever talked about indigenous creations, Spanish American, Native American. The American Wing at the Met was really built on collections from great civic communities, New York, Charleston, Boston, Philadelphia. But over the past decade, that's changed. The collections have changed. The Met's American Wing now has a great collection of Native American art, the Diker Collection, which I worked on. It was one of the last things I did before I left was the acquisition of that collection, which really changes the way that people are viewing American art. Latin American art as well is now a collecting purview within the Met. And it crosses both European art, because a lot of it comes from provinces that are categorically situated in European paintings department, also have great resonance for America. Think of America historically in most great art museums as being colonial America, the Eastern seaboard. Building out even art from California feels a little far afield. But Canada, Mexico, all of North America, all of South America, these are collections that are represented, catch as catch can, Brooklyn has a great collection of Latin American art given in the 1940s. There are ways to pull together, ways that interpretations can be stronger. Clever curators will be able to work on juxtapositions that make sense, rather than having you know, special galleries that are these segments of American art in one gallery just for Native American art or a gallery just for Latin American art, how it gets integrated into chronothematic histories of American art will be very, very interesting. That would be the encyclopedic kind of American art of the future. So I'm really proud of what the Met's doing and other museums as well in this space. Let me say about the collections that are, you know, it's my field, Copley, Stewart, Sully, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. I do think there's a great project coming forward and just what we say about these works of art. You know, a lot of the labels that we see in museums will tell you who somebody is. A typical label, right, is when it was painted, how it was painted, how it was paid for. But cultural studies in America have been very, very strong, even within my lifetime. Again, going back to the 80s, American history, American culture, American studies is a field with universities that is broadening even as we speak. 
the remit for curators of American art is to take that on with new vigor and to look at how labels and text panels and galleries and audio tours and online resources can capture that really rich American history in the kinds of texts that people read because they count on those. We love, they love those, love an audio guide. So we're, it's, our, um, it's our responsibility to teach people a broader history of how these things were created. I completely agree about that broader history. I'm curious, a contrarian might ask, are the students coming out of graduate programs today being trained in the history of art in as rigorous a way as you and I were? In other words, will they be able to authenticate a work of art? You know, I don't know is the specific answer, but I think what's embedded in your question, Max, is the importance of expertise or lack thereof. I haven't done curatorial work now for over a decade. It's why I still get mail from people who have a Gilbert Stewart, or they think they do, or someone, you know, has a painting that was attributed to Copley. They're not quite sure. Or someone has a Mary Cassatt. There's a market in the auction world that expertise will certainly be important because to determine that something is by Mary Cassatt or not will be important to determine whether something is by Van Gogh will always be important. Expertise in terms of authenticating what we used to call formalism or being able to determine an artist's eye may not be the presenting problem anymore. I think more and more people now walk into museums, if it's on the wall and it says that it's by Cassatt, it says that it's by Van Gogh, somebody knows that. Tell me a story about why this is important to me. The world of social media has made us all, I think in a very good way, saying how is this relevant to me? So the question of who painted something and are you sure can still go on in the back rooms. So we can take that expertise for granted and not put it at the forefront of, let's say, a museum exhibition. At a certain point, the capturing of attention will be, I saw a painting that made me happy. I saw something that reminded me of something. Look at that a little bit closer. Oh, I see that it was painted in Philadelphia by a woman. Who was she? How does the museum know that it was by her? I'd like to find out more about her. So what I'm getting at is this sort of the layering of information is kind of flipped. Back when I was working on digital media at the Met 2009, 2010, what we were looking at was that the expertise was first. A label would describe why this is by said artist and then it would tell you a story. I'm suggesting that those stories need to be told first. The stories have to be relevant to visitors who need to be engaged. And then if we catch them, we can engage them. They're going to need to know, you know, why is this by this person? And who said it was? And so there will be room for that expertise. If formalism and hard discerning looking at actual works of art brush strokes, spending time in conservation labs, which you and I have both done, trying to figure out who painted them. It isn't part of the current way of studying now. It may be that in this moment, the pendulum has to swing toward cultural studies, but at a certain point, it'll swing back. It's like within my lifetime. It did a little bit. I went to UCLA 
where you know I learned a lot about formalism and close looking at the University of Illinois. I specifically went to UCLA so I could study with Albert Boehm and learn a Marxist approach. I wanted to learn about who bought it, patrons, how did works of art get commissioned, where were they hung, how were they enjoyed, how did it show up in castles. So that was in the early 80s, that kind of approach. And there were many, many, many of my cohort who looked at feminist approaches cultural approaches to why works of art matter. We were also taught to look. I think the greatest universities will hold on to that. And if art historians are smart, they'll continue to do that. They'll be careful lookers and careful interrogators of history. You know, one last question, Carrie. You speak very movingly about the engagement of the public in the core histories around American art, the storytelling. You may be the single most successful person in pulling that off on the big stage, by which I mean television, cable television. Eight years ago, nine years ago, you were a guest on the Colbert Report and managed to parry and thrust very deftly with Stephen Colbert's hilarious alter ego about Emmanuel Leutze's 21-foot-wide painting, Washington Crossing the Delaware. Why, in your view, are the visual arts so rarely present in televised entertainment that reaches millions in one go? Oh, gosh, hard question. That whole event with Stephen Colbert was so much fun. And I was lucky to be there at the same time that the American Wing was reopening after its renovation. They seized on Washington Crossing the Delaware. Google it, Washington Crossing the Delaware. Look me up and find Colbert. He poked fun at the picture. He turned it into something that could be a public spectacle, if you will. Within days, they made a set piece that was as big as the painting and had it dropped down over the stage, which was actually a surprise to me. I hadn't known that they were going to do that. When that thing dropped down, the look of surprise on my face was genuine because I didn't know it was there. How ridiculous, but how wonderful. But you're right, those spots are hard to get. Remember, we got postponed and postponed and postponed because they weren't sure. And finally, they did kind of slip the Met me in on a night when somebody else had canceled. It's entertainment. And we have, as museum professionals, think have bristled at the idea that art is entertainment. Art is serious. It has integrity. It teaches us something about the past. Maybe we could lighten that a little bit. I've been a storyteller all my life. One of the last exhibitions again before I moved into my deputy director was called American Stories. It was all about taking American paintings from the colonial period up until the end of the 19th century and talking about the stories that they told, stories of American life. I keep thinking, I've been talking to my colleague Barbara Weinberg, who co-curated that with me, about how we take that catalog from now 12 years ago, sort of flip it into a, a blog or telling different stories, look at it now and say, what stories would we tell now? They might capture the kind of online or TV audiences that you're talking about. Well, thank you for being our storyteller today, Carrie. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Max. What a pleasure to talk to you. We've been speaking today with art historian and arts administrator, Dr. Carrie Rabora Barrett. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.